Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here in Montreal for the NeurIPS conference, and I am with Alex Ratner. Alex is a PhD student at Stanford. Alex, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So we're going to talk a bit about uh, one of the projects you're working on at Stanford, a project called Snorkel. Uh, But before we do, I'd love to hear a bit about your background and how you got started working in ML. Great. Uh, So like many at the NeurIPS conference, I'm, uh, you know, was a reformed physicist from my undergrad days, uh, went out uh, finance for a bit, and then crawled my way back into academia, where I've been, you know, for the past four plus wonderful years at Stanford, where there's a ton of exciting stuff going on, um, and uh, that kind of led to the the current work, which I guess we'll talk about today around the uh, system called Snorkel. Tell us about the system. What is what is Snorkel yeah. trying to do? So the idea with Snorkel, um, or the idea that Snorkel is predicated on, is that one of the biggest bottlenecks that people face right now in the kind of current era of these. Uh, you know, highly automated deep learning algorithms is getting sufficient amounts of labeled training data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want to train one of these, especially here at NeurIPS, if you want to train one of these fancy architectures, uh, a lot of them uh, require, you know, are very, very complex. They do a lot of stuff like picking out all the features to look at and uh, taking in the raw data and transforming it properly. They, they do this automatically, but this of course comes at a cost, which is that they generally need lots of, of uh, training data to learn from. And this training data often needs to be labeled by people uh, who have some kind of domain expertise. So if you want to train a model to outperform a radiologist at some, you know, mammography task, for example, where, you know, there are some narrow results uh, on on things like these, uh, you need months and months and months of, uh, or longer of, uh, you know, radiologists sitting there labeling data. Uh, So this has become a, you know, a significant capital expenditure for big companies. It's become a significant uh, bottleneck for you know, people like scientists or clinicians from actually applying these these awesome new ML techniques. And so the question with Snorkel that we tried to address was, can we uh, enable, you know, subject matter expert users to give kind of higher higher level inputs, things like rules or patterns or um, noisy signals from other models that they have lying around and use this to train up and leverage these these awesome new uh, machine learning models that are out there. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of allowing subject matter experts to work kind of in the domain of rules of the, you know, their expertise. I often characterize one of the things I see in this space is kind of this swing from you know model-based approaches to machine learning or to systems more broadly to kind of these purely statistical-based approaches that have no, um, that don't really attempt to capture subject matter expertise and it sounds like Snorkel is part of a bit of the pendulum returning to the center, which is trying to incorporate in some of this domain expertise. I, yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, this is this is really an age-old question in you know the field of AI more broadly: is how do you inject domain expert knowledge mm-hmm. into a system? And you know, ever since statistical learning techniques have become so powerful and, and useful in some areas. How do you inject this domain knowledge into them, right? Right. And uh, you know, more broadly than snorkel, you can see this pendulum beginning to swing back a little bit when you go look around the poster session here at NeurIPS. You know, there's uh, definitely more work out there around uh, explicitly defined, say, generative models, where you know someone has set some explicit structure rather than just learning all of that structure from data. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know, snorkel is definitely fitting into that narrative in that we're trying to 
bridge bridge the gap between the two. We're, we're trying to use domain expert knowledge that is you know expressed in a really simple way. We have experts, or you know, we have you know whether they're clinicians or journalists or uh, uh, or um, you know whoever these subject matter experts are, they write what we call labeling functions. So they're just okay. simple little functions that you know could express a pattern or a rule, or they could call some other classifier, and they just take a data point and say. You know, say it's a binary classification problem. Yes, no, or I don't know. That's all. And they just, they can be Python functions, whatever they are. They just dump them into the system. Okay. And then we try to use that to take advantage of these statistical models. So we're trying to kind of bridge the two worlds via this very simple conduit of training data. Well, before we get too deep into Snorkel and how it works, it's a successor to uh, an earlier project called Deep Dive. Uh, there's a clear theme uh, yeah. there. <laughs> Somebody likes to swim or dive or snorkel or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe tell us a little bit about uh, Deep Dive and its origins and trajectory. Uh, Deep Dive, um, like many uh, you know, great initiatives in computer science these days, it was kind of in large part based on or based around this big DARPA project, um, uh, one that's still ongoing that actually Snorkel is being used in right now called Memex. So it's this big project that uh, is run by DARPA around uh, anti-human trafficking. Okay. Um, and it's had actually, it's actually in you know the hands of law enforcement and making a really big impact. And the uh, problem- So I'm familiar with like the DARPA, like the Autonomous Vehicle yeah. Challenge and some of the others. I'm not familiar with Memex, so. Yeah, yeah, so um, the Memex Challenge, uh, Broadly has been focused on uh, kind of targeted search, trying to uh, extract information from the dark web and use it to actually aid law enforcement in, in uh, identifying individuals that are you know, potentially being trafficked and interceding. Uh, so it's really an incredible project. And uh, there's a lot of teams uh, you know, across both academia and industry that have contributed. I know, you know I wasn't so directly involved, but in our lab, um, uh, Deep Dive had uh, contributed around uh, trying to map uh, from what we sometimes call dark data or unstructured data, so things like websites and just this kind of messy data that's really tough for computers to deal with, and actually pull out structured stuff. Like imagine pulling out an Excel spreadsheet with well-defined columns or a graph of entities and their relations from this messy unstructured data. Mm. Um, and that's a really tough problem that machine learning often does really well at. But you know, when we tried to do this, it wasn't the you know lacking a fancy model architecture to do this. It was really uh, needing training data. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, asking you know people to look at these terrible websites for you know weeks or months on end to label a training set and then find out that actually one week later we don't need that training set anymore. We need a different training set, so throw it out and start over again. Mm -hmm. You know that, and this was somewhat surprising because you know we had been working on all these fancy modeling and, and inference improvements. That ended up being in that and many other projects the the, the biggest pain point, the biggest blocker, right? Like. When we started moving into snorkel, uh, we would sit down with clinicians from the Stanford hospital system and, you know, we would be really eager to tell them about our new fancy model. And they'd say, wait, hold up, you know, you said something about I have to have a large labeled training set. I don't have months to sit down and do that. What gives? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what, what do I do? So we realized that um, all these incredible advances uh, in the models and how, they, how easy to use they were. Um, were coming about in this wave over the last couple of years, but everyone was blocked on this first step of getting training data for them, mm -hmm. right? You know, and people ignored this for a long time because uh, you had things like ImageNet, which was a really you know an incredible resource that jump started that and other data sets jump started this this current you know wave of deep learning progress. Um, 
took several years to create. You know, I know my advisor, Chris, was involved a little bit, you know, downstairs uh, from us was where a lot of this happened. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're working on that, that's great. Um, but then you want to take the models that are doing, you know, you want to take that incredible progress and you want to translate it into a real world problem where there's no labeled benchmark training set. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a huge problem. So uh, we sort of shifted gears a little bit, uh, you know, deep dive uh, went out into the world and then, you know, we decided with uh, uh, this new project, Snorkel, to really tackle um, this problem of creating training data. And rather than viewing training data as this thing that just sort of existed before you came to the problem, we decided we wanted to make it kind of the first class citizen of our, our new framework. And so in Snorkel, really the, the main activity, you know, Snorkel supports arbitrary models. You can plug in your favorite model downloaded from uh, online, plug it into PyTorch or TensorFlow or whatnot. But really the thing that users do in Snorkel is they write these labeling functions. And the goal is to get uh, subject matter experts to, as quickly as possible, dump in all of the signal and the knowledge that they have uh, in a much kind of higher density way than if they were just sitting saying yes, no, yes, no on radiology images for months. And so you, you have subject matter experts producing these labeling functions, you know, so, and, you, and so that provides, you know, some degree of abstraction over the labels themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then I, I can imagine a bunch of different directions you might yeah. want to go with that. Like, are you using these probabilistically? Are you like active learning, incorporating some kind of active? Like what, what's next? What's, yeah, no, that, uh, what that's, that's a great question. And actually, I mean, <laughs> there are ongoing projects on kind of like all those and, and too many other fronts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a thing as too much fun. You know, my advisor has a, a story of, uh, called the, you know, we call it the parable of the burritos that he uh, had a, a burrito eating contest. And then he, uh, you know, finally asked his friend, why are we eating all these burritos? What's the reward? And his friend was like, well, it's more burritos. That's kind of how research <laughs> feels. You know, you work, you work and you work and you work. And well, what's the, more, what's the reward? You get to do more work. Uh -huh. uh, so it's, it's, you know, you hope that you like the work you're doing, right? But uh, we have a ton of stuff we're trying to do on, on top of it. You know, I'll go back to the first thing you said, which is that you have this abstraction away from labels. And that's one of the things we're most excited about is that um, the big thing that we're trying to do with Snorkel is turn training data labeling from a hand labeling, you know, hand annotation activity to a coding one. Mm -hmm. And this code is supervision paradigm, this shift, then, you know, we hope and we've seen with some of our prototypes allows you to use all the benefits of code, different abstraction layers, modularity, um, inter you know, increased interpretability. So when your training set is 20 labeling functions applied over unlabeled data rather than a million labeled data points, mm -hmm. if you find out that your modeling goals change, you can try to change your labeling functions in half an hour rather than having to throw out your training data and start over again, mm -hmm. which is a, a massive problem in real-world deployments of ML, as far as we see. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, is, does this apply most directly to a certain uh, type of problem or use case? I'm thinking of, for example, you know, the reason why deep learning has been so effective in the computer vision realm is because creating, uh, you know, rules for these types of problems, like, you know, where's the cat in this picture? It's, yeah. like, super hard. How do you yeah. do that? Well, Oh, it's, it's a great question. It's a great question. So this... This, and, and it really ties in with that notion of like building higher level abstractions on top. So okay. uh, we started with text. We started with these, uh, okay. you know, this like, you know, Memex problem of, okay, we need to quickly train a classifier to pull out names of entities or relations. You know, uh, we've done projects over um, electronic health records at the VA at Stanford where we want to pull out mentions of, you know, there was pain in this joint or this area of the body, right? Okay. This is actually kind of messy because language is messy, but you can imagine how you'd write rules over text, right? You, you know, you... You give some rules and the model 
then in, you know, learns to generalize beyond it. Now images, um, we've done some interesting stuff. One thing that we've done, uh, this was a NeurIPS paper last year actually, um, an extension called Coral built on top of Snorkel where we uh, basically applied a bunch of unsupervised algorithms to kind of get macro level features of images. So imagine that, um, and then we had people write labeling functions over these. So there's oh, a tutorial we have online and, and all of this, there's a lot of material at Stanford, uh, sorry, snorkel.stanford.edu. Um, so this exact demo is there as a little toy demo. But imagine you wanna classify, you wanna use a, you know, a deep neural network to classify when people are riding bikes. Like you wanna do activity detection. Mm -hmm. So we just use an off the shelf uh, bounding box thing to put you know, bounding boxes around a person and a bike and then people would write labeling functions that say, okay, if person is you know, above bike vertically and centered, mm -hmm. then label true, else label okay. false. So huh. you can write these labeling, and again, this is the abstraction level thing. You can write right. labeling functions over these kind of building blocks or if it's mammography, you know, we could pre-tag all the blobs in the image and then the, you know, domain act, the clinician writes labeling functions about properties of those blobs. Mm -hmm. And then of course, this is a pipeline. So we're just trying to generate training data for some, some things, right? And then the goal, and this is what we see empirically is that the deep neural network will learn to generalize beyond that training data. So you mm -hmm. write these rules, capture some small portion of your data set, and then you use it to train a model that learns to cover the whole data mm -hmm. set. And so you just said you're just trying to generate training data. Are you actually generating the training data or have you integrated these labeling functions into the training process? That's a great question. There's definitely stuff where we want to close the loop. Yeah. Um, the basic, you know, the basic setup is that these labeling functions and generating is maybe a loaded term. We're, we're trying to label training data sets. So okay. what these methods rely on is or the way that we mostly do it is unlabeled data. To describe another project that I'm quite excited about at the moment, we're collaborating with the radiology department at Stanford and mm -hmm. actually a bunch of teams around Stanford Hospital um, that'll focus on the radiology applications where we have, uh, they have troves of unlabeled data. And what this unlabeled data looks like is generally comes in pairs of an image and then a text report that right. the doctor wrote, right? And so you could think of that text report as like kind of a messy jumbled version of the label that you actually want. Uh, and so there were efforts, which are really cool, where, you know, I think there was one where they took, you know, a couple of years and we actually have a paper out in radiology from someone in our lab on using this uh, labeling effort that took years of, you know, radiologists sitting and labeling data. Uh, with Snorkel, we asked this question, could we have a radiology fellow uh, spend a week or two, write these labeling functions over those text reports and generate labels that were almost as good? Mm -hmm. And then if we piped in... 10x the amount of unlabeled data, could we even do better? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, this is this intuition, which is an old one in ML of like, well, maybe a larger amount of noisier data can, can beat a smaller amount of ground truth data, right. especially right. if we use a technique like snorkel that kind of, you know, learns to reweight and combine the labeling functions, kind of denoises it automatically. And so the answer was yes, it's actually, you know, uh, we just dump in as much unlabeled data we can get our hands on, we apply the labeling functions and dump it into snorkel, which kind of reweights and recombines them. And then you get a better training set that can be used almost as effectively or sometimes even more effectively than that hand-labeled training set that would have taken months or years. Okay, so we, we've talked about defining these labeling functions. Uh, and it sounds like the, the most basic use is to use these labeling functions to label data. But 
it's not a straight application of this labeling function. There's this reweighting that you've alluded to a couple of times. What exactly is happening there? Good, yeah, great question. And that's that's a part that we you know really like to get you know uh, deep into the math on that on that front. So this was, okay. I mean, I guess the first paper was at NeurIPS in 2016. Uh, it was okay. called data programming. So we have a method um, which you know it's based on old intuition. So if you you know uh, the intuition is is this is that. If you have a bunch of sources, you have a, a bunch of, say, a bunch of crowd labelers, and you don't have any ground truth, but you want to know who to trust, mm -hmm. uh, you can start uh, under some assumptions and just say, okay, say, say all that they're all independent. None of them are colluding with each other. Just say, okay, well, I'm going to trust the ones that are in the majority more often. Sure. And if one of the crowd labelers is almost always in the minority, I'm going to discount them, maybe think that they're adversarial. Whereas if someone is always in the majority on every data point, I'm going to trust them more. Okay. Uh, so this is an old idea. Yeah. Um, this is uh, you know a big area of work in the past in crowdsourcing. So uh, in our NeurIPS 2016 paper, what we were doing was um, kind of extending this to this more this kind of uh, more tangled setting of having uh, functions rather than people, because mm. these functions can have all kinds of weird correlations, right? You know, two people we've had this happen before. Two people can write two labeling functions that are near duplicates of each other or exact duplicates, mm -hmm. and you don't want to double count their votes. Mm -hmm. You could have whole clumps of labeling functions that are using the same kinds of patterns or the same data resources. It's code, right? Code can have arbitrary weird correlations and overlaps. So is it is it fundamental to the model or the way you envision the model being used that uh, for a given problem, you'd have multiple subject matter expertise, uh, subject SMEs kind of creating labeling functions it's almost like instead of crowdsourcing labels, you're crowdsourcing labeling functions. Yeah, there's, there's so we're actually doing a study on that idea of like meta crowdsourcing that we actually had a, a workshop um, a couple of weeks ago at Stanford where we had 15 teams come and they were doing stuff around text extraction from uh, in the bio domain. Okay. And uh, we actually have now post hoc collected all 15 like the labeling functions from all 15 teams. Okay. And actually does better if you just dump them in all in all in together. Huh. Um, but you know, practically, it's usually you know, with a lot of our engagements, it's just one subject matter expert. What what is essential is that they write more than one labeling function, right? So they usually for write the same like, for the same problem for the same problem. Yeah. Okay. So you know, we'll have the in that example I gave about you know classifying uh, chest X rays, for example. Yeah. Um, the radiology fellow wrote twenty labeling functions, and okay. they were all you know they were a mix of things like looking for certain words or matching against certain ontologies of diseases or checking how many times the word normal was said. All these kinds of okay. messy heuristics, and so in a sense, you're you know it's it, that you're trying to apply you know what you consider to be like um, it's just good programming. Like a, a, a single labeling function has like conceptual boundaries. It's trying to generate a label based on this, as opposed to some you know single Mongo labeling function that takes in everything you know about the data set and tries to. Label yeah. it. That, that, is, that, that is such a great example because that speaks exactly to kind of our motivation in that, uh, you know, we, you know, I was kind of glossing over a little bit. Like we didn't just go from, okay, people only hand labeled to now we're doing what we did in Snorkel. We mm -hmm. uh, saw that people were trying these what's often called weaker ways of supervising models where they were writing code. Okay. But the big pain point there, including in our lab with, with the previous system, uh, Deep Dive, and the problem there was that Exactly. If you try to make one big Mongo program to produce the labels, mm -hmm. this becomes the same kind of spaghetti code that you were trying to avoid in the right. first place by using a machine learning model. Right. Um, so 
the idea with these labeling functions is yes, you're, you're, you're just writing little snippets and you're leaving it up to snorkel to figure out how to weight them, how to combine them. You don't have to sit there again. You know, it's not magic. It doesn't right. work always right there. You know, rather than if I have two labeling functions and I want to, you know, I, rather than sitting there and being like, well, which one do I trust more? Or one yeah. example, say you have one labeling function that, you know, labels 10,000 points and you trust it way more and one that labels a million points and you trust it less, mm-hmm. you know, how do you combine, what's the right way to combine them? Right. You don't need to worry about that. You just dump it into the snorkel and snorkel weights them accordingly. Mm-hmm. Or you have 10 labeling functions and you don't, you don't want to like sit there thinking, okay, which one should override which one and which combination. Mm-hmm. You just dump it into snorkel. Um, it's, it's interesting. So uh, I did an interview last week, I think, with Rich Zemmel at the University of Toronto. And yeah. he's doing some work on, on fairness. And one of uh, his papers is about a system that is trying to create an unbiased system by having the system refer decisions to kind of human participants in the system, but start to learn their biases and Uh refer things to them based on those biases. It almost sounds like there's some application of that here where the system can learn which of the functions work best given a certain type of input data and then, you know, dynamically use these. Yes. Yeah. I mean, no, that, that's <laughs> your, your, uh, your questions are uncannily uh, good. Because <laughs> you're also, you're also asking all about projects that are, that we're currently underway. So it's almost okay. like my advisor paid you. Um, this is one thing that we're very excited about. So the base thing, the system, so I'm sure also, you know, I, I haven't read that particular paper, but it sounds like and I'm, I'm quite sure there are lots of, you know, parallels in, in the ideas and stuff. And in our setting, you know, we start by learning an accuracy for every labeling function, mm-hmm. right? And again, it's, a, it's that, you know, we use uh, um, some, you know, matrix completion style techniques. So we, in, in 2016, we were using stuff around Gibbs sampling. We had, you know, you know, some, we, we, you know, we have our various fancy ways of doing it. But the intuition is that, like, you know, you try to learn the accuracy based on, you know, trusting the majority and, and having some assumption that they're kind of independent mm-hmm. or learning which ones aren't, which ones are correlated with each other. But we're increasingly uh, moving into this area where we are learning actually like biases that are conditioned on data. So you mm-hmm. can learn that, you know, this labeling function is much better for daytime conditions than nighttime conditions, mm-hmm. right? That's where it's kind of expertise is. Um, so that's exactly something that we're, you know, playing around with right now. Okay. Okay. And I would imagine that some of these biases could be explicit, like the SME could be could consciously say, "Oh, if I was looking at this, you know, this uh, radiological image, um, I guess that's not a great example. But if I was looking at this picture of a person on a bicycle and yeah. it was dark, you know, I'd look for reflectors." But yes, uh, then there are these implicit biases that you just kind of it's better to learn. Anything that's simple for an SME to to write down in code, or even. You know, I should mention one of the other things we're doing, going back to that point of abstraction layers, I guess mm-hmm. I'll, I'll briefly go on that tangent, uh, which is that um, you know, one of the things we're really exciting, excited about is kind of building up the, this programming stack. So you know, if you think of a traditional programming stack, you go from like, you know, machine language all the way to increasingly higher and higher, more declarative levels until you get to like, right. you know, voice commands or GUIs, right? Yeah. We're trying to think about the same thing with training data. If training data is a sort of machine code, that's like the common thing you compile to. Mm-hmm. Uh, labeling functions are like the lowest level thing you can program in. How can you go higher and higher, right? So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and it's, it, I mean, a lot of these are still, you know, they're kind of prototype level, but like um, my lab mate uh, presented a paper called, it's a great name, better than Snorkel even, Babelabel, at, um, uh, <laughs> at ACL, which is one of the big NLP conferences uh, this year, um, where the idea is that, 
you give explanations for why you're labeling data points, and these are compiled, they're parsed automatically into labeling functions uh, and then dumped into Snorkel. So we want to... Meaning the SME provides explanations as to why they're labeling manually. Why they would label something. They don't actually have to do the manual labeling. They're just looking at examples and they're giving explanations and those okay. are then parsed using something called a semantic parser into mm -hmm. uh, labeling functions, which again, of course are super noisy, but that's what Snorkel is meant to deal with. Right. Um, so whatever the level that the SME can provide this stuff, the goal of Snorkel is just to, you know, whatever they can provide, take it and whatever is too laborious to provide, like those exact conditions yeah. or those exact sort of if then clauses, just kind of learn that, right? Huh. Kind of fill that in. Yeah. And, and another practical tool there is that these labeling functions can abstain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you know the labeling function is really uh, good for daytime but not nighttime, mm -hmm. and you have a way to express that, um, then you can just write a labeling function that says, if daytime, you know, vote on my, you know, output a label, else just abstain. Right, right. Yeah, that was another feature of this, uh, this Rich Zimmel paper that I was referring to. The, um, one of the things that they did with their model is that it could say yes, no, or pass, and yes, kind of defer yeah, yeah. to... Um, another model or in their case a human and we i know in our setting we find that this uh, you know this abstention is actually like a very very critical tool in, in practice this mm -hmm. ability to say i you know i pass or i don't know mm -hmm. and in their case i imagine in your case it's you know when i first heard that i was like okay well okay if it's you know below a threshold of 50 percent confidence or something like that you abstain but it was way more nuanced than that yeah. i imagine that it's similarly nuanced in your case yeah it's it's similar because the 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 place where you pass on or the place where you abstain on does have some bias to it. It's where, right. you know, where the expert thinks this heuristic doesn't really apply, I guess. Yeah. And, and it's a, you know, it's a rough version of that. Right. Um, right. And again, you know, our goal here is to speed up in a human in the loop process mm -hmm. um, and to fundamentally bring it to the level of coding rather than labeling, not to obviate it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, people have to, you know, people iterate on these labeling functions, but this ends up taking, you know, days or a week or two, not months or years, and then it can be repurposed or reapplied when your next problem comes along. Mm -hmm. So this conversation about programming levels of abstraction and, uh, and functions in particular uh, is kind of pulling me towards like an infrastructure path and thinking of like serverless. Does that mean anything to you? Like Lambda functions, AWS Lambda and that kind of thing? Yeah. We, I wonder if there's an intersection here somewhere. I don't, it's not obvious to me what it would be there, other than that functions are the primary currency of both systems. Yeah. I mean, the, there's a lot of in, interesting stuff we want to do. I, I don't have any uh, directions we've explored around that. I mean, it's certainly an interesting area. We haven't um, tried that out with Snorkel yet. I, I will say this is... You know, a bit of a bit of a right hand turn, but something I think is important is that, or that we think is important is that Snorkel is very much what we think of as a systems ML type contribution, mm -hmm. right? Like the you know one of the initial papers or the initial paper was at NeurIPS in 2016. It was about the algorithm, but um, the real contribution that we're excited about here is really a, a merger of sort of you know machine learning algorithms in theory, but with systems and framework concerns, right. and that's something that I you know I a lot of us feel pretty excited about. Um, we're actually uh, you know, there's a PC meeting for this new SysML conference here, uh, you know, dovetailed on with, uh, with uh, NeurIPS. Hmm. And uh, this is a conference that's happening. I mean, unfortunately, the, the call for submission already happened, so I can't advertise it shamelessly <laughs> here. Um, but, you know, at NeurIPS, at the workshops, there are actually two different systems ML conferences, systems ML and ML, ML for systems. Yeah. 
And then um, there's this SysML conference happening in uh, at Stanford in the spring. And, you know, mm -hmm. those of us involved think separate that... Separate from the scaled ML? Yes, separate, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. And I think a little bit of a broader umbrella. We're going to okay. be releasing a white paper soon on sort of kind of what we see the scope as. But I would kind of pitch it this way. Um, there's so many fundamental core problems in core ML that still need to be solved. They're almost more so because, you know, deep learning came in and made such a, you know, a, a splash and such an empirical impact in certain areas, but we still understand it so, so poorly. And, mm -hmm. you know, we need to work on so many problems around that that are really fascinating. But it's kind of had an impact enough that a lot of us are saying, look, it's time to build the engineering infrastructure around it. Right. Right. Like, the, you know, it's valuable enough that people want to use it and they can't. And it's not because they don't understand, they don't have a fancy enough algorithm. Yeah, you're it's preaching because, to the choir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think this was, you know, shot down by some of my co-organizers, but I like the metaphor of like a sandwich almost. Like, you know, the core is the ML stuff, mm -hmm. but, you know, on the bottom you have the, uh, you know, you have the lower level concerns of how do you, how do you build the hardware for modern ML, right. uh, you know, algorithms? How do you, how do you serve it? How do you set up the distributed systems? On the top level you have, how do you, you know, put, to get, put it together in end-to-end -end workflows. Mm -hmm. Things like snorkel or things for data pre-processing or interpretability or serving or monitoring, right? right? So you have these sort of types of considerations that that's not kind of what NeurIPS specializes in usually. Mm -hmm. And we think there's a, an exciting area to really fill out these engineering or systems aspects of ML. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely kind of where we see a lot of the interesting questions around snorkel. I mean, yeah. both the ML algorithm side, which we love too, but also these like you know, not, we haven't dealt with the serverless question yet, but th those kinds right. of questions. So we started talking about the uh, way that it kind of chooses between these labeling functions. Um, and you mentioned that it's evolved. You started with Gibbs sampling and some other things. and But it's an area that, you know, folks enjoy, folks on the team enjoy kind of geeking out yeah. about. Like, can you go into some more detail on sure. what exactly is happening there? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'd say that... Um, Again, you know, if, you, if you're into this area, one of the things that we're quite excited about is this uh, handling correlations between the labeling functions. So mm -hmm. if you think about this as a modeling problem, you know, you could kind of, we, we call it weakly supervised. Uh, and, and this is one of the, you know, areas uh, or little sub-communities that we're quite excited about. Ran some workshops actually at last NeurIPS and at iClear coming up this year on, on weak supervision, this idea of noisier or cheaper or higher level supervision. Um, but the core model in Snorkel that learns the accuracy of the labeling functions, you could think almost of unsupervised mm -hmm. uh, in that we don't have any ground truth uh, labels. But either way, what it looks like is you have, what you observe is you observe the votes of these labeling functions. What you don't observe is this latent variable of the ground truth. So it fits into this tradition of latent variable models, uh, but in this new kind of way where these labeling functions can also be correlated with each other uh, and so we've done work on, you know, if you know the correlations, if your SME user says, look, these two labeling functions are basically the same, I just tweaked a number or I tweaked a threshold. And then our system can take that into account and learn the model knowing to expect that these two labeling functions are very correlated, that we shouldn't double count their votes, basically. We've also done work. There is an ICML 2017 paper, and all this is up at snorkel.sanford.edu. Um, before you get to the, the, the next paper, when yeah. you're talking about kind of the, these correlations are you, you've got these functions that are originally at least provided in the the Python domain, the programming domain. Are you 
kind of projecting them into like a linear algebra do domain. Yeah. Does that so, make so sense? I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a, that, I think that's a def definitely a great way of putting it. I mean, we're, I mean, but, con you know, concretely, just to keep it simple, what we're doing in the, you know, what we're doing is we're just taking their labels and then we basically just leave them as black boxes. Right. And so you've got yeah. some transformation from some input yeah. to exactly. a label. So we have a bunch of functions. Right. We have a bunch of unlabeled data. That's another right. critical ingredient. Apply the functions to the data. And then we have a, a basically a matrix of noisy labels. Yeah. And then uh, that's what we work with. Although we have done the, the um, you know, one of the past uh, NURPS papers last year was looking at what if we actually use information in these functions? So we can actually hmm. do static analysis on them. They're not black boxes. This is another interesting facet right. of, our, of our, kind of unique facet of our setting. They're not black boxes, right? I can, I can have a really pretty simple static analysis program that looks at two labeling functions and says, hey, like they're nearly identical except that one number was tweaked. Therefore, mm -hmm. I should model them as correlated. Okay. So, so we can open that black box, but at the end of the day, we just have this, you know, we have this matrix of noisy labels, right. and we just need to know, you know, how to reweight them according to the different sources they came, the different labeling functions they came from. Do you apply kind of traditional like uh, PCA or things of dimensionality reduction or things that are trying to find these correlations, or do, are, are some of the things that you've mentioned? You know, are there kind of, I guess, are there unique aspects of, you know, this noisy matrix yeah. that make other techniques better than the more generic, uh, you know, ways of finding these correlations? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 and that's a, a great intuition as well. And in that, you know, some of the techniques we're looking into are connections to a sign known as robust PCA for, for learning the structure. Um, the ICML paper I mentioned from last year on learning the structure was building on, you know, classic techniques and probabilistic graphical models for okay. learning the structure of the models. Um, except our setting, we don't have ground truth labels. Mm. So that kind of fundament, that, that's like the fundamental change here is that um, we're, we're missing the ground truth. And so then we show that we can still learn the structure from data. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, again, you either learn the structure or you're given it, and then you need to take it into account in the modeling. You don't mm -hmm. want to effectively, if we go back to that majority vote intuition, you don't want to double count two labeling functions that are basically the same. You know, in cahoots right. and are always going to give the same answer, right. right? That'll throw your model off. And, you know, our motivation, once again, is really grounded in developer process, right? Like we've seen failure modes happen according to this. If you mm -hmm. want to have three developers um, or if you want to, you know, we just uh, post online about a, a, you know, a report of some of our collaborations with teams at Google, right? You have a huge scale where you have teams of, you know, multiple people uh, working on these labeling functions and they're all different types, you want to be able to just dump them in and not worry about if some of them are too correlated or not. Right. So you want to have the system take care of that for you, not because it's going to you know, quadruple performance necessarily, but because it's going to avoid catastrophic failure modes. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like increasing robustness in a human-in-the-loop driven process is really mm -hmm. our kind of motivation. Okay. Uh, you mentioned you just posted this uh, paper or summary of some work done with Google. What can you share about that? Yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, at a high level, uh, the interesting kind of academic thread there, I would say, is that um, the, you know, it, it, we refer to it as sort of how do you leverage organization scale resources. So I can talk, I can talk high level about some of the ideas I think are interesting there and, and the details are on, on archive. But, um, you know, one, one aspect is this notion that um, if you go to any organization or many organizations these days are sort of you know, dealing with this ML question, right? You know, what, how, how, you know, 
we have all these data resources. A lot of corp, you know, a lot of companies or labs or whatever, you know, a lot of organizations, they have troves of, of rules that they're, you know, or chunks of code that their experts wrote from before. They may have messy labels that are kind of outdated or noisy, but are sitting around. They may have even mm -hmm. other classifiers that are too brittle to really be the solution, but, you know, have some signal. And then on the other end, you have these shiny new deep learning models or, or you know, or they could be complex models of any sort, random, you know, forest, XGBoost, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and the question is, how do, you, how do you bridge that gap there? And a lot of organizations are just told, okay, well, throw out the old stuff. That's useless. It's legacy. Spend uh, an enormous amount of resources hand labeling training data and then jump onto the new, the new train. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what we showed, at least in some cases in this, you know, collaboration uh, was that you really can bridge the two using techniques like snorkel, where you take that and use it as weak supervision for training these modern models. Okay. And one of the other cool aspects I'll briefly mention there is this notion of going from non-servable to servable models. So you, you can write these, this weak supervision of these labeling functions over data that you don't want to serve in production. It could be like aggregate statistics. It might be models that are expensive to run, knowledge graphs, um, stuff that you can't serve efficiently in production, you could use that to train a model that can then run over, you know, cheap, public, servable features. And so mm. this seemed to be another aspect of this kind of pipeline that is very um, useful. Okay. That's the one thing we learned. Interesting. Interesting. Um, awesome. Uh, what, where, what's next? Like, it sounds like you've got a, a ton of threads that are already kind of spun up about, you know, pushing this research in different directions. Um, yeah. I'm, is Snorkel, is it open source? Like, can people play with it? Yeah, or? for sure. And, and uh, you know, we love feedback. Uh, perversely, like many academics, we like negative feedback even more than positive at this point. <laughs> you know, we've, <laughs> we, we've been fortunate to have people have, you know, wins with Snorkel. We're very interested in, you know, interesting failure modes or, or you know, requests for features and anything. So it's, it's all online at uh, snorkel.stanford.edu. We have tutorials. Mm -hmm. uh, we have blog posts, uh, links to all papers and stuff. Okay. And again, you know, it's great when people, um, you know, find things that they have questions or they say, oh, could be used, could it be used in this setting or it didn't work in this setting. I think right. I have an interesting reason why. We love that stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, and then in terms of what's next, I mean, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, one thing that we're working on, it's actually in a separate repo just while it's in, uh, in beta for now, which is uh, this version of Snorkel called Snorkel Metal. And it's supposed to be mm -hmm. the, the multitask version of Snorkel. So this is an idea... Um, uh, basically, people are getting excited again about this idea called multitask learning. Mm -hmm. This is an idea from back in the 90s. It's just, you know, if you have multiple, and, and it's something that's, an, it's an old theme in the area, right? If you have multiple things you're trying to do, um, just like how humans learn, right? right. Uh, what if you, you know, kind of do it all jointly? Right. You share the learned representation between these tasks. Um, and so there's kind of been a resurgence of interest in these techniques you know, kind of in, in the realm of these new architectures, right? Mm -hmm. um, and often what these look like is actually kind of conceptually simple. You, you are the base, the vanilla version. You know, you, you have some deep neural network right. and uh, you have the bottom layers are all shared across K different tasks. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of split off at the end and learn these like little top task specific bits. Mm -hmm. um, but you benefit from kind of sharing a representation of the world or of the data between all these different tasks. So what really we're really interested in exploring this from the perspective of weak supervision. 
Okay. And, and you know, one problem that we, uh, we kind of detailed in a, a paper that's going to be presented this year at AAAI was, okay, how do we deal with the weak supervision from multiple tasks? If people are writing labeling functions for K different tasks that, you know, mm -hmm. have different kinds of relationships to each other, like imagine a hierarchical thing. Like I have some labeling functions that say, you know, this, this is a, um, a, a lawyer versus a doctor. This is a, a bank versus a hospital. And then some that say person or organization. Mm -hmm. So you have different levels of granularity. That's one example, right? right? How can we have people dump them all in just like as in snorkel, but now in this multitask setting and handle it. So that mm -hmm. was one extension we worked on, but moving forwards, um, uh, we really think that, you know, most of the multitask learning work, which has been really exciting to date has been around a couple of hand labeled data sets. They're kind of static. We think that as people begin to move towards these weak supervision methods, the number of data sets is going to explode. And you're going to have now these sort of massively multitask models where, hmm. you know, rather than saying, oh, look, we can do better on these five different data sets, you know, that, that are there, you're going to have tens or hundreds of, uh, you know, training sets for tens or hundreds of tasks that are all weakly supervised. They're all changing. Okay. And the question of how you manage that all in one big model, I think is fascinating. So there's the, the kind of the modeling aspect of that at multitask, but also where does that training data come from? And yeah. these labeling functions could help contribute to that as well. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that that's also, again, on the system side, what's really interesting is how do you, you know, if you, if you have people, uh, again, it's just a big shift, right? It, right now, you know, training data is a new training data set takes, you know, months mm -hmm. minimum to put online for a real world problem, right? Mm -hmm. When a training set can be created in hours or days, mm -hmm. uh, and you're going to have tens or hundreds of them, how do you manage that? Right. And so that's, again, we think there are all these interesting questions around organizational level management of, of new training sets that are weekly supervised. Mm -hmm. How do you put them all together? How do you amortize costs across them? Uh, mm -hmm. We think this you know, MTL line of thinking is one answer to that, mm -hmm. along with our existing work on Snorkel. Well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about this stuff. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Great stuff. Very fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.